Hello, welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, hosted by me, Jack Perks. Professionally, I'm a wildlife cameraman, but I dabble in podcasting, and each Tuesday we release an episode as I have a chat with scientists, artists, filmmakers, and passionate people all about nature in a light-hearted and certainly not serious way. Well, hello there. How are we all doing? I'm continuing the theme of rivers with the podcast by having Alan Henshaw on today. Now, Alan is the farm manager for the Environment Agency's Calverton Fish Farm. We talk about what a fish farm is, why they're needed, and what they actually do. Calverton's only down the road from where I live, so I popped down to go meet Alan. He's a lovely bloke and we had a fantastic chat. But before we get to that, I'm going to mention buymeacoffee.com. Now, this is a website where you can support the podcast. I run this all on my own. I'm not funded and I'm currently not sponsored. So the only way that I can make any income and continue making these podcasts is with the support of you, the listener. There's a link in the description. You can donate whatever you can afford. And we're trying to raise money currently to get a new microphone, 500 quid. Currently, we're 75% of the way there. So we've nearly done it. So whatever you can spare is greatly appreciated. What we normally do as well is if you leave a comment, we'll read that out in the next podcast. Now I'm having to record this introduction early, so I haven't got any messages to read out this week because I'm actually in Scotland when this podcast goes out as I'm trying to film salmon. Obviously very on brand for me filming fish. But let's get back onto today's topic as I go down to Calverton Fish Farm and have a good old chinwag with Alan Henshaw. Well morning Alan. Morning. We are uh, sat at Calverton. Just talk me through the the process here. We've got a load of stock ponds out behind us. What is it that you actually do here? Okay, we've got thirty two ponds, and uh, and our job is to produce fish, coarse fish, um, for stocking into rivers and lakes throughout the whole of England. All of the work that we do here is funded by anglers rod licences. We couldn't do it without anglers buying a rod licence. When was Calverton set up? Ooh, a long time ago. We're talking <laughs> 1939, so it's even wow. before my time even. Uh, and originally it was a trout farm, uh, and they built it all through the war, which always amazes me because you'd think they've got other things that... Uh, <laughs> other priorities. Other priorities, <laughs> yeah. Um, so they built it all through the war, uh, and it was a trout farm for many years. Uh, and then in the mid-70s, they split the farm into two. Half of it was an experimental unit, which uh, was run by Keith Easton, who was my first boss, uh, and half of it was still trout. And then uh, in the uh, early 80s or mid-80s, 1985, they closed the trout side down, and we've converted this over to a coarse fish farm. And then we expanded the farm in the early 90s. So our job, as I say, is to produce coarse fish. And we produce around about half a million fish per year. Um, so that's uh, that's a lot of fish. And what species uh, have you got here? Which ones do you stock? Well, we start with grayling and dace in the spring uh, when we're spawning the fish. And then we do the chub, the barbel, the roach and the bream. Then along comes crucian carp, and then or crucians rather, then rudd. And then we finish off with, uh, with tench. So we do nine species in all. So who decides, right, we're going to do this species as opposed to 
why not any gudgeon or something like so why, why those nine species they're the most popular or they're in trouble or what why those it's they're the species that the fishery officers throughout the whole of the country ask us for right uh, and they put uh, requests in for fish and then we we monitor those requests and then we basically we sort of um what's the word i'm looking for we produce what is wanted now okay. in terms of species like uh, gudgeon and bleak it's a very good point the trouble with gudgeon and bleak they're a very small fish obviously you mm. know uh, they only live for two or three years four years at the most so it's very difficult for us to spawn them and then get them to a size where we can stock them out and frankly where we are venue constrained we haven't got enough room to produce any more than the nine species that we already do Right, so there's not, there's no fluctuation then. It might not be that one year, okay, we're going to bring this one in. It's pretty much, these are the nine that we do and that's what goes out. We may change the numbers. So we okay. might have a, a year where we go long on roach uh, uh, or we might have a year where we go long on, on tench or on crucians because we're producing fish not just for rivers, we're also producing fish for still waters. But as I say, we can monitor the requirements of the fish and we can uh, you know, produce fish accordingly. Because I guess... If you were going to try and do, say, perch or pike, because people are like, oh, they're quite popular for fishing, they're a bit trickier. <laughs> they are a bit trickier, and they've got uh, rather sort of antisocial habits. <laughs> we have done pike here. Um, we did some in the very early days, and we've done grayling. Oh, sorry, we've done gudgeon, and we've done bleak, and we've done some of the smaller species, and we produce those so that we could. If we know that if we've got mummy bleak and daddy bleak, you've got baby bleak, and and the the progeny we use to produce a key that biologists use to identify juvenile fish. So we've done them, but yeah, the, the thought of producing pike on the farm uh, is uh, is fraught with difficulty because you just need a few to get into your ponds and then uh, they're going to do you a favour. I guess as well, if you've got a pond full of little pike, eventually you're just going to have one very fat pike, aren't you? Exactly the point. <laughs> exactly the point. And I mean, back in the early days, we did actually produce pike uh, and then we uh, you know, we thought, well, we'll grow a few on. And we put some in a tank and I think we started out with 20 in a tank. Uh, and I think within a few short weeks, we were down to four, one in each corner. Uh, gladiator <laughs> it was yeah and then it was kind of an arms race then and so we we, we took them out because yeah. we but there would have been logically we would have finished up with one pike yeah. In the pond. yeah it's amazing really isn't it and to the to the uninitiated they might think well why do we need a fish farm like what's what what is the what's the purpose well in the early days you know when it was set up as i say it was a trout farm mm. and uh, we used to stock trout into uh, still waters and reservoirs and stuff like that when we converted it into a coarse fish farm you know we targeted those species that are the most popular and the most common however you know the fact is that we're a crowded island uh, and for whatever reason, there are some rivers where there are populations of fish where the recruitment is not what it should be. I mean, it's all our fault. It's always down to us. It's because we put weirs across rivers to make them navigable. So we drown out the gravel. So for species like the chub and the barbel uh, and also the uh, the gudgeon as well, you know, it's difficult for them to spawn. Uh, in other places, you know, there's floods of water will come down and they will wash them away. Um, so the recruitment is not as good as it should be. So that's our job. Our job is to simulate that recruitment that would occur naturally if there were no external factors acting on a fishery so and, and success for us is not the fish going out the door 
Success for us is when we've stopped a water or, or, or a stretch of river and then we begin to see those original progeny grow on, become sexually mature, spawn themselves and then begin to recruit. That's, that's what success looks like for us. And I suppose when you compare it to other animals, so let's say that you've got a, you could have a woodland and it could be full of woodpeckers and interesting butterflies and whatnot. You could clear that woodland, replant it, and those animals could recolonize because birds can fly, insects can find their way, plants can travel on the air. But if you lose fish in a river or a lake, it's very difficult for them to recolonize, isn't it? Or it can be very difficult for them to recolonize. So when you've got a place like Calverton, you can offer those fish a chance to come back when naturally they would struggle to do so that's 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 a point however fish can swim um, <laughs> they can, yes. and 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 <laughs> fish produce lots of eggs i mean that's part of their reproductive strategy you know um we're talking about a species like dace for instance it's only a small fish but the female might have as much as 20 percent of her body weight in eggs which may be as many as uh well you're talking about sort of 12 14 16 thousand eggs inside so they produce lots and lots of eggs fisheries will re still waters obviously won't because there's no influx but for rivers they will recolonize and they will repopulate but it will take many years what we're able to do is we're able to pump prime if you like we can get them back and recovered much faster just by doing some selected stockings for still waters that's different you get a total wipeout in a in a, in a still water uh, and it would take many 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 years and the species that you would get back probably wouldn't be the ones that you'd lost but uh, yeah, so nature is very, very resilient. We just don't give it much of a chance often. Yeah, it's the kind of classic line from Jurassic Park, isn't it? Nature finds a way. Yes. What about things like genetics? So, because obviously you're stocking fish all over the country. Do you have to think, okay, well, if we've got fish in the trend and you're spawning them, can you then put them in other rivers or is that going to mess things up a little bit? One of the species that we do grayling is, is part of the trout and grayling strategy. So when we're restocking grayling, and we only grow the grayling on t for probably two months maximum and then we stock them out into the into the rivers, we always get brood stock from that river system because that's part of the grading strategy and the genetics and all the rest of it. For coarse fish, it's a different argument altogether. Coarse fish have been moved around for... The Victorians uh, were, 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 were really hot on that kind of thing. And the waters have become muddied, and there's no evidence to suggest that genetically the fish from the Trent aren't suited to the river... Uh, some of the rivers in around London and stuff. Okay. So it's not an argument that we need to we need to pay much attention to. No. What we do do is we make sure that the broodstock sites that we've identified have got good populations, and and there are no other underlying issues with those populations. And the Trent is such a fantastic fantastic river you know the fishing on the trent is now better than 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 since well i don't know the last 100 150 years probably even more you know the the what the fishery is just an amazing river and uh and with you know lot specimens of each each species but more importantly a wide side a wide size range as well so we're seeing good recruitment which is the important bit and i guess biosecurity must be pretty important as well so when you're bringing fish into the farm and, and when you're stocking them out into other rivers like how how rigorous a process is that like are you going through a fine tooth comb for every fish to make sure they're not carrying anything like how, how does that all work 
Well, we don't keep adult fish on the farm, ah. so we use wild fish. So at any time, our fish that we stock out are only one generation away from wild. The advantage of that is that means we've identified broodstock sites where there are thousands of fish. So we only sample a small subset of that population. So we've got the, the genetic variation. Biosecurity is something we are very, very, very keen on. And when the fish come onto the farm, we assume they're absolutely lousy with the parasites, <laughs> which they're not. But naturally, fish in the wild have parasites and we don't want them on the farm. So when we bring them back, everything is isolated. There's, the farm is broken up into different zones. All the discharge from the hatchery is ozonated. So there's no way that fish from say the the kennet for instance when we bring them here so grayling or dace you know they may have a particular parasite that's only native to the kennet we don't want it in the trent catchment but those fish are completely isolated we keep them for two weeks usually less than a week uh, and then they go back to the river where we got them from originally and we always produce more larvae than we need and so we put a load of extra larvae back in as well so we make sure that our broodstock collection isn't having any effect on the recruitment for that for that native stretch. But biosecurity, everything's disinfected, everything's colour coded. Yeah, we're really, really hot on that. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And you you mentioned the late Keith Easton earlier, and I thought I'd, I'd bring it up about Burbot because I think he was Burbot mad. And uh, I've spoken over the years about Burbot, and I know there are rumblings at the minute about potentially bringing them back. And I think there's been conversations with you about it, but it's it would be tricky to do it here. Is that right? Like to have them at Calverton? Or is this all classified yet? Berber is unfinished business. We okay. have spawned Berber, but not here at the farm. We did it at the university uh, with uh, a guy called uh, Dr. Jim Reader and also Keith. Keith is my first boss and uh, and I'll be always forever grateful to him. And, uh, you know, in his ability to generate ideas and his vision for it and certainly Burbot was something that he was very very keen on we've come close a few times Ian Welby at Brooksby they did very very well they spawned them and uh, but it's unfinished business now whether we're going to be involved in that or not who knows um, but certainly Keith was the main driving force without Keith the farm wouldn't be here and every one of the lads here knows the debt that we owe to him and and I worked with him for uh, for a long time and uh, he was just a it was just a great man. Yeah, so we'll see. We'll see. I know we, we, I'm speaking to Norfolk Rivers Trust, and I know they're trying to push the ball. So maybe in the future. Well, look, you've got me excited. So shall we? Shall we go and have a look at some of these stock ponds and see how it's all done? Can do. Okay, so we're outside in the farm now. So what's happening, Alan? Well, the lads are sorting through fish. One thing that we do a lot more of nowadays is polyculture. So we grow five or six species together. The only downside of that is that at some stage we've got to separate them out again. But we've found that the fish grow much faster, in better condition, and I think also it, uh, it, it suits them for life in the wild a bit more because they'll be living in a, a community of fish. So they're sort of on like a, a fun slide for fish, I guess is one way to describe it. They're all in a big bowl, they go down this little slide and they're going into a, a net in a big tub of water. Yeah. So that's what, and what have we got? Is it chub? Is that what we're sorting through? There's all different species. Okay. You can see that. Uh, oh, yeah, I see. Yep. The yeah, fish yeah. have just been introduced now. There are crucians in there, there's chub in there. And what they'll do is they'll allow one species to come down into the net. They're all being counted. So the counter will count 30,000 fish an hour and it will be 99% accurate. But they need to be separated. So that's what the lads are doing now. They're, 
separating the fish into different species and accounting them. So we know, we know to the thin how many fish went into these ponds and we know to the thin how many fish come out as well and we'll sample as well. Is there a big difference? I mean I guess you, you're going to have some that just pop the clogs aren't you? That's just nature isn't it? But is it pretty good? Because this is a, I guess a five star hotel for fish pretty much isn't it? They're getting healthcare, they're getting food, they're getting a nice... I imagine they've got a pretty good good life in there. Yeah, the survival rate is high. Yeah. And it's certainly higher than it would be in the wild because we discourage predators. We've got strings over the ponds. So that will uh, discourage the crew, the, um, the cormorants from coming right. in. The whole of the farm is fenced, so we're not going to have problems with mink or with otters. We have kingfisher or we have herons. You know, they're, they're, I won't say they're welcome, but they don't do us any damage. <laughs> so we let them just do what they do. The survival rate is is sort of high 80s, low 90%, which oh, wow. is considerably higher than you would get in the wild. And are these this year's? Are these all from this year? No, these are two years. These year, are two years. Yeah. I was going to say, they've put on some weight if, that, if they're a year old. Yeah, you can see the fish. Yeah, wow. They look, they're really shiny, those chub, aren't they? Great condition. Beautiful. They are, and we pride ourselves in that. And, of course, the important thing is, is that the fish that we're stocking are fit for purpose. Mm they've been grown in flowing water uh, you know you can grow them in still waters but then when you put them into a river they're just not fit enough and that was one of the problems in the early days before we, we, we started here people would net still waters and put fish into rivers well they're just not fit enough these fish they know what natural food is they they met a predator uh, they they've they've you know they've been challenged in a number of ways they know what habitat is but they've been groaning flowing water so they are you know these are these are marathon runner fish <laughs> you know you can put them into a river and the the red mussel which is the, the small amount of mussel along the flanks of each side of the fish there's lots of that red mussel and that red mussel they can use that 24 7 whereas the white mussel which is the bulk of the mussel they only use that fight or flight so this is really important so we jump through lots and lots of hoops trying to make sure these fish are fit for purpose because we stock them out there'd be no point stocking them out if they then get washed downstream no you could stock you know hundreds from a still water but if they're not going to make it what's what's the point you're better off having fish that can actually cope with the challenges they're going to face when they go back into uh, back into the river and that's the exact point and that's what used to happen you know some rivers that we stock uh, they'd been stocked on a num for a number of years previously with stillwater fish and the fish had never stuck. Uh, whereas uh, the River Don in Sheffield is a good example. We began to stock it and the fish stuck. And then, as you know now, the, the Don is a really, really good fishery. Yeah. And that's yeah. built on the basis of improvements in water quality and also the, the, the pump priming stocking that we did. So you're moving thousands of fish around the country like how do you move thousands of fish around like what what's the kind of process you've got a, a big van or something like how do they how do they move and how do you how do you keep them healthy and happy while you're doing it well that's the important part because 18 months of hard work to get them to the size of stocking can all be wasted if you don't transport them properly we've got our own vehicles two vehicles with tanks on the back each tank has an oxygen supply, each tank the oxygen level is monitored. We also put one or two bits in the water that help to replace lost mucus and just help with uh, conditioning the fish. And we can, we, can, uh, we can be down in south of London. We even transport fish as far as Devon and Cornwall um, and the fish arrive in tip-top condition. It's amazing. It's such a big operation. I think it's easy to just think that 
you've just got a couple of ponds, chuck some fish in and crack on. But it's quite, it's almost industrial in a way. And I don't mean that as a negative thing, but it's a big operation that you've got here at Calverton. There's, there's tanks everywhere. There's almost like a big polytunnel. There's ponds, solar panels. It's, um, it's an amazing thing, really. And I guess most anglers don't realise the scale of it. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. It's taken as many years to get to this, this uh, kind of, these facilities. You know, and we're continuously developing our techniques, trying to improve the way we do things, trying to reduce the amount of energy that we use is a big one. As you mentioned, the solar panels and stuff. It, uh, it works really, really well. And the staff here, they're such an expert team. You know, they love what they do. They're all fishermen. And, uh, and that certainly is a, a real asset and a blessing. They'll be, instead of counting sheep, they'll be counting crucians and things, won't they, when they go to sleep tonight? You can just tell, like, <laughs> mental going through all those different fish. Absolutely incredible. And, of course, we're going to go through all these fish. We've only got a short window because we can only start harvesting the ponds. Well, the beginning of October is the earliest that we can start because the water temperatures are still too high. So by harvesting the ponds, we are going to have to get all of these fish harvested, sorted, and then delivered before hopefully Christmas so it's going to be a really intense couple of months for us two or three months yeah now. not a long it's really. our busiest time of the year yeah like Santa for fish aren't you almost like getting around the country and, mm. and getting them incredible well it's been absolutely fascinating Alan seeing how all this works it's incredible if people want to find out more about Calverton what's the best place to to go to well we used to have a nice little website but uh, we haven't got that anymore um, there's a very good uh, um, uh, video on YouTube which uh, was made by the Angling Trust, and I think that probably encapsulates everything that we do. Okay. Um, so I would I would point them in that direction. I'll chuck a link to that in the description so people can uh, can check that out. But thanks for having me today. It's been great to see what you guys are all doing, and any excuse to waffle about fish. But cheers, buddy. It's been a pleasure. That was Alan Henshaw, absolutely full of enthusiasm for fish, as is his staff, and they've all helped me out massively over the years. Whenever I've needed to get pictures of fish eggs or fish fry, they've always been on hand to help me. So they're a fantastic bunch of people. I will put that Angling Trust video in the description as well because that gives a really good idea of, of what they're all about there. I think in recent years, the Environment Agency has increasingly come under scrutiny. And whenever I've spoken to staff, you can see a sort of a sense of frustration sometimes and I'm not saying that Alan or any of his staff have said this to me I mean I work with the Environment Agency all over the country and I feel like one of the concerns is that it's it's underfunded which is a fair thing to say increasingly over the years even in the 10 years that I've done freelance work for the Environment Agency the amount of staff that have been let go and budgets that have been cut they are struggling and one of the things that would be immensely helpful is more funding the the Environment Agency Essentially, the um, the fisheries arm, anyway, at least, could could definitely do more funding and could go a long way to, to help them actually do their job. So it's something that hopefully will happen. Who knows? Stranger things have happened. But Calverton is a great example of something that is being done right because, and we touched on it briefly in that chat, but when you lose fish, particularly from a lake or from stretches of rivers, it can be difficult for them to come back. It's not like butterflies or birds or plants that can self-seed and, and recolonize. Once you lose fish, they, they struggle to come back. You, if you've got a load of tension late and they all die out, they're not going to come back on their own or they're incredibly unlikely to come back on their own. So Calverton is able to fill those gaps 
an increased biodiversity of fish when it's highly likely they wouldn't come back on their own. So I do think that they are filling a very important role and it's all being funded by rod licenses, by anglers essentially. So it's great work that they do, absolutely fantastic. Now if you listened to last week's podcast, you'll know that I was going to talk about how many downloads that we've got and some of the most popular episodes that we've done. So we've reached 60,000 downloads, which for a one-man band independent podcast is bloody good, just to kind of put that into context. It means that we're routinely in the top 10 nature podcasts, often in the top five. So we're doing pretty damn well to say that I'm just sort of steering the ship on me, Todd. Now, in no particular order, I'm going to go through the 10 most downloaded episodes. So let's say that you're brand new to this podcast and you think, I wonder which ones have got the most downloads. I'm going to go through it. And in next week's episode, I'll talk about my favourite, the top five favourite, which aren't necessarily the same. So the first one up is A Career in Wildlife Filmmaking with Bertie Gregory. Bertie's just released a series on Disney+, Plus, so that's probably why that's doing quite well. But he's a, he's a nice bloke. I've met him a few times. Uh, amazing wildlife camera operator. I think he's only in his late 20s. So he's not that old either, but he's absolutely smashing it. So if you want to find out about what it's like to be a wildlife filmmaker... You can do worse things than to start with that podcast. Second one up is What's the Wildlife Photography Industry Like with Josh Jaggard. Josh is a really good friend of mine. If you're more interested in the still side of, of, then that's a great podcast to listen to. I used to live with Josh. He was best man at a wedding. I know Josh incredibly well. And we have a very frank and open discussion about what it's like being a wildlife photographer. I had the pleasure of having Jules Howard on the podcast and we talked about debunking pond myths. So all those things that you've heard about ponds, birds bringing eggs in and newts eating all your tadpoles, all those sort of things. We talk about that in that podcast and we go through some of the things that are correct, some of the things that are absolute rubbish and just talk about garden ponds. Now I often have anglers on the podcast and I had Matt Hayes, he came on and we talk about his career in angling all the shows that he's done and what he thinks about some of the more recent shows as well. Richard Pierce came on the podcast and we talked about great white sharks and specifically, are they in the UK? The answer might surprise you. We've had a lot of podcasts about sewage and generally poor treatment of rivers and Joe Crowley from The One Show and Countryfile came on and we talk about why raw sewage is being dumped into British rivers. Ben Burville came on as we talked about close encounters with grey seals. Ben is a doctor, but in his spare time is a wildlife cameraman and it has some incredible encounters with grey seals. Now I'm going to talk about the top three now. These are the top three downloaded episodes in no particular order. Record Fish and Burbot with Chris Yates. So Chris Yates is an absolute legend in the angling world. He was the record carp holder. And we talk about everything from hen harriers, catching carp and Burbot which ties on nicely to number two, which was a podcast completely dedicated to Berbert. I went over to Belgium and I interviewed some of the experts about Berbert and how potentially we're going to release them into the UK. The cogs are turning and that episode was called Reintroducing Britain's Lost Fish, the Berbert. And then last but not least, Catching Monster Fish with Jeremy Wade. So unsurprisingly, that was one of the more popular episodes. Jeremy came on the podcast. We have a good talk about his career, all the fish that he's caught, all the weird and wonderful place that he's been, and also about the upcoming film that myself and Jeremy are working on together called Britain's Hidden Fishes. 
So those are the top 10 most popular downloaded episodes for the podcast. So if you've not listened to any of those, it might be worth checking them out. Now, next week, I'll talk about the five favorite episodes that I've done recording. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at TitBearded, and you can also follow me on Twitter at JackPerksPhoto. Over on Facebook, it's the Bearded Tits Podcast, and my Facebook is Perks Wildlife Media. On Instagram, it's at FishTwitcher, and you can also follow the YouTube channel Perks Wildlife Media. Hopefully you've enjoyed today's episode. It was a great one to record. Next week is an episode of Jack Does Stuff. And this time I'm going Xander fishing. I'm heading down to the River Trent and I'm going to talk all about Xander. Will I catch one? You'll have to tune in to find out. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next Tuesday. Cheers. <laughs>